May it please the court. There are several issues before the court today, but the one I want to focus on first is taking something that is very clean under Missouri law and making it much more nebulous, uh, making it much more unclear. And in Missouri, the history of the case law has always been you have a breach of contract and a vexatious refusal to pay claim. This has been held throughout the life of the case law in Missouri. It has been held by the A Circuit in Aziz that where there is no judgment for the plaintiff on the insurance policy, there is no vexatious refusal to pay claim. As Aziz characterized it, it is a derivative claim. Under the statute, the penalties are in addition to penalties under the contract and for interest under both vexatious statutes in Missouri. And, and the opposing counsel would like the court to muddy the waters, to open the door for claims that do not necessarily have a corresponding breach of contract action. Well, didn't the Missouri Supreme Court do exactly what you're saying in Dine versus State Farm? Dine, I think, uh, no. They did not, because in Dine they had a claim for interest. And what's interesting, there is a very specific line in that case, the Supreme Court case, that says that a claim for vexatious refusal can still be held when you still have a remaining claim for interest for delay. And they even point out that they're getting that interest for delay. And it goes to actually having that hand in hand. And by not having the corresponding claim, you know, I, we understand the court's concern in dying. You can't just pay up the day before trial. Now, appraisal's different, which I'll discuss in a minute, and then expect to have zero vexatious liability. By keeping your interest claim, you, uh, one, still can show the jury the delay just, just based under the contract, and, and it's, it's, you get money for that delay in the way of the interest. But... It, 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 it is still proper under the statute that in addition to the claim for contract and interest, you can have a claim for vexatious. It can be uh, married with the language of Aziz. It can be married with the language of cases like Olga Depositus. So I don't think the court in Dine did specifically hold that. It specifically held that you do have to have some other claim and specifically pointed okay, that. But, but even if that's true, the rule you're arguing for excuse me, creates the exact problem you identify, which is the insurance company can hold out to the last minute before trial, pay it off, and there goes the vexatious refusal. I disagree, and I don't think that's the facts that we necessarily have here, because under this particular situation, um, we have a claim that was dismissed with prejudice. The breach of contract was completely dismissed as far as having a, just simply ponying up the money at the last minute and therefore you don't have a vexatious claim. I'm not aware. I mean, you can pay under the policy um, that paying the interest and trying to get away from that. I'm not aware of anyone trying that. Plus, the interest continues to run through the judgment itself. Um, so I think you'd still have claims. And the problem is the opposite is the more dangerous proposition. The opposite is you pay a claim and you still have exposure for vexatious because it's not 
They'd like to point to delay. That's one situation, and you have the interest. The other situation is simply paying a claim prior to suit. Why couldn't you bring a vexatious action for the recalcitrant attitude of the insurance company at that point without the breach of contract? You're, you're separating two things that don't need to be separated. One goes with the other. The jury instruction pairs them together. The Missouri cases pair them together for a reason, so that we don't have, essentially then, you create a separate tort, which the Missouri Supreme Court has, has, has rejected a tort in bad faith in first party cases, overcast. But it, it's, you, you're creating a separate tort where money needs to be exist. It, it's supposed to be paired with the breach of contract. It should have been here. The claim was dismissed with, with prejudice in this case. The bank could have pursued their claim again for interest. They didn't ask for interest from the company um, uh, at, at that point. They dismissed with prejudice after that. I also think that generally these facts should not support a vexatious claim generally under, under Olga Depositus. There was two paths the bank could have taken in this case. There, they filed a lawsuit. They were going down the path to a judgment with, you know, and, and trying to get the vexatious claim. It, after the experts were disclosed, uh, after we made a supplemental payment, they elected to pursue the appraisal process. Um, after pursuing the appraisal process, the, all the two appraisers and the umpire agreed on the damages. A supplemental check was issued. Um, I agree with the, the reasoning in Olga Depositus, at least it, it's more clearly outlined in the district court level, that you, you once you, if you were allowed to vexatious after that, you're subverting the appraisal process by allowing them to essentially say, see, see, they owed additional money. Um, they should have paid that up front. Well, the appraisal process is essentially, it's, it's akin to an alternative dispute resolution and should be used um, appropriately. And there was essentially, again, two avenues they could have taken here. They decided to take the avenue of the appraisal process. Um, and I think that, along with the fact that they dismissed it with prejudice and there was no corresponding breach of contract of any kind, does make it where they have extinguished their vexatious refusal count at that point and should not be able to recover on it. I also think that going on to the second point or the, that ties into this is even if there was a proper vexatious count before the court, that we were unreasonably restrained in presenting our evidence regarding that vexatious count. The court specifically, you know, page, I believe, 14 of the transcript I asked and told the court, the court told us that, that they didn't want to talk about the various payments. We were told explicitly, I believe, on page 83 of the transcript that we were, we were told not to connect the payments to the fire damage. And I was asked specifically if I understood that. So we had a case in this situation where there were multiple payments made under the policy for reasons. We were not allowed to tie why there was a change in payments. We weren't allowed to present that evidence. We weren't allowed to present the figures. We weren't allowed to present that the appraisal figure was actually only $171,000, is actually the, which is very similar to the amount that, that the Olga Depositus Court had looked at as far as the additional payment under the policy. So we weren't allowed to present that evidence under cases like Tauber, under cases like Russell v. Farmers, under cases even like DeWitt acknowledged that the evidence is, uh, there's a wide range of evidence that is admissible in a vexatious case. I mean, including hearsay and things of that nature. I should have been able to explain why the payments were made 
and what, uh, why the insurance company did what it did. Unfortunately, I was restrained, and the reason being that they, she felt it would hurt the arson case. But is that is that an issue of state law or federal law? The the these, the evidentiary issue that you're talking about. Because I didn't see I didn't see any recitation of federal. If it's a matter of federal law, I didn't see the federal rules of evidence or, or federal cases mentioned I, as you argued it. And, Your Honor, I, I think it, it could potentially be, as an evidentiary issue, be a federal issue. I would point the court. It has been um, adopted in the federal court as well. I want to say, at the very least, they talk about it in Cedar Hill. I thought part of Russell was federal, but maybe I'm wrong. So let, let me, but I, it is, has been adopted on the federal level as far as there being the evidence of vexatious and the general concept that an insurance company is allowed to explain its decision um, and be allowed to present a wide range of evidence um, has also been adopted by the federal courts. And I know at least at the district court level, um, because I've had that argument in a motion to eliminate, and I, I'm almost certain, but I can't cite a, a specific case right now. Maybe Cedar Hill, but, they, they, but I think there are cases that stand for that proposition. So as far as, and then just generally, um, that restraint caused uh, a massive amount of prejudice to us as far as not being able to, to actually discuss each individual payment, not be, being able to discuss the reasons behind the timing of the payment, the reasons for the payment, you know, things like, you know, the increased cost of construction during the litigation. Uh, we got a contractor as opposed to some sort of estimator to, to, to look at this thing and, and give a worst case, biggest number possible type situation. So there was additional evidence that we could have presented and that I asked to present to the court and that was rejected. I'd also like to discuss um, some of the aspects of the exclusion of evidence under the, in the arson case, specifically the exclusion of the testimony of Skylar Lazar. Um, again, this was an arson case. Ms. Lazar, as both parties knew at the time of the trial, um, may have testified, or we, we, we knew from the fire marshal that she was likely going to testify, that she overheard a conversation between the owner of the hotel and another individual that they were planning on starting a fire at the hotel. There is no dispute that they knew that. That is in Mr. Hildebrand's deposition. That was before the court in the summary judgment. Any argument otherwise is simply untrue. We knew what she was going to say. This woman was disclosed as an expert, I'm sorry, not an expert, as a witness during the case. Um, it, she is, was a transient. Um, she, it, she was very difficult to find. Neither party could find her. We went, we expended a cent, uh, uh, a more enormous amount of effort trying to find this woman, um, and we were unable to find her. Up until we fired a private investigator, found her, I believe, at a boyfriend's house, were able to serve her. At that point, we had no contact information. We decided, we, we filed the return of service that also had, it had the information that we had, which was that she was served. Um, at the point of trial, she showed up on the first day. I did not speak to the well, woman. How, once you found her and served her, why wasn't notice given to the other side of your, of? We, we did file the return of service. Um, and then practically, Your Honor, I did not call Clark, and I, 
and I can honestly say I did not know when, because I, I was in another trial at the time, I don't know when I was even informed of it, but we did file the, 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 the service. We didn't have any other information other than that, that we had served her, not any sort of contact so information. were you aware she was going to be present at trial the day she appeared? I was aware that she was served. I was very uncertain of whether or not she would actually appear. Um, we had no confirmation from her that she would actually appear. She showed up as we were getting ready to do our openings, and my associate asked her to come back on Wednesday. We didn't have any further discussion or anything like that as far as the case. We never had any discussions with her, as which is clear from the record. Um, we were on, still on a completely even playing field with the plaintiff at so that point. So what notice did the other side have prior to the testimony that the witness was going to be called? We, she, they had our witness list. They had the return of service. This, as far as the substance of the testimony, they had what we had, which was Chad Hildebrand, the fire marshal, had talked to her and relayed what she had told him. Um, and so those are the, I mean... Do you she, have a case where the decision of a judge to exclude this type of offer of a test of a witness is reversible? I think that... Uh, anything as far as any evidentiary ruling, it would be the same standard. Do I have one in the civil context? Because uh, I've never, the, the frank, the matter, this is the first time I've dealt with it, and I could not find a case specifically. I, is there still limits to it? Absolutely. Can there be an abuse of discretion? Absolutely. I think that there are limits, and those limits were reached here, insofar as we had a woman that pointed the finger at the plaintiff. We knew that that was what was going to happen. But we the, got her at the, the very last damning point. nature of that also favors providing the other side an opportunity to uh, uh, examine that witness prior to their appearance in court, or at least to interview them. Well, and we did provide that. On, uh, the, the court, we, talk, we took it up on Tuesday. The court wanted additional arguments. She showed up on Wednesday morning. We were not going to present evidence until Wednesday afternoon. We did offer. She was there. She could have been interviewed at the same time at that point. We did not have an opportunity to interview her either, and we did not take any sort of uh, strategic advantage here or any. Uh, this was a ongoing four-day trial, um, and uh, this we we did um, basically we are still on a level playing field, and we did, I think, provide we had the same information that they did, and I think that it was still um, reversible error for her to not allow Ms. Lazar to testify. Ms. Moore, you're well within I know. your time. You can reserve the remainder okay. of your Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Carter for Academy Bank. Mark Carter for Academy Bank. Um, the first issue we had on ours was the vexatious refusal, and there's uh, an issue just simply how you interpret the cases that they've relied on. And we don't agree that the interpretation they've imposed is the correct one intended by the court. Uh, the, Olga, the Olga decision on appraisal and the effect of that concerns distinct facts where the appraisal uh, was sought in the context of the insurance company immediately paying the undisputed part of the claim an $800,000 figure, the parties disputed the remaining amount of the claim, and the insurance company promptly invoked appraisal, and when that was resolved, they promptly paid the difference. Here, uh, they didn't pay anything, 
we sued them. Uh, they then paid an amount their appraiser approved. They did not pay that for an extended period of time. And then we uh, proceeded on the litigation. They did an updated appraisal. They paid that, but again, very late. And then we commenced the appraisal process. And at the end of that, they paid, but again, late. And we're not suing for the delay incident to the processing of the appraisal. It's the pre-existing vexatious liability they incurred before the appraisal began. And there's nothing in Olga that absolves them of that liability. So they're just distinct cases. On the, on the vexatiousness itself, we're talking about not making an argument that you didn't pay me the full amount at the beginning or saying you are liable when your own man approves the payment of a specific amount, you've admitted coverage, there's no other conditions preceding to payment, and yet you go months without paying it. And then it's up to the jury to decide. How much time did elapse? Pardon me? How much time did elapse from the time an obligation arose? The, the original 134000 was shortly after the fire in October 19. They made a payment, I believe, in July of 21. Uh, that was after we began a lawsuit. They never paid it voluntarily. Then when they updated later in, I believe, January of 22, based on their own man saying the undisputed value is X, they waited another two months before they paid. Then we did the appraisal. We're not objecting about how long the appraisal took, like happened in the other case of uh, Olga. But there again, it was three weeks before they, they paid that amount. So what we're the whole case was, we're not suing you for the total amount or the amount of the partial payments. That was decided by their own man. What we're saying is, you delayed in payment, and the Dime case, the DeWitt case, and this court in the American Home case said, delay is enough to trigger the statute. You then have to, as the insurance company, show a reasonable cause or excuse for the delay. And they offered no evidence during the case for the excuse. So the elements were there, and then it's the province of the jury to decide, do I think that's unreasonably long, and what's the penalty up to a total amount set by the statute? And that's what the jury did. On the process claim, which is ancillary to the uh, appraisal fight on the uh, paying the vexatious claim, they're complaining that the judge, at least initially, said, I'm not going to let them tell you the amount and I'm not going to let them of the total claim loss, and I'm not going to tell them the insta installment amounts that you paid as your ingester changed his mind about the proof of claim. What, what we're saying is, it's again the delay. So the relevant thing for the judge to order admission of was how long was that period? And the bank officer testified when he got the payments, 
and the reports from the appraiser were admitted into evidence, that the jury had the, you know, acknowledgement of liability and the payment date. So they could determine from that whether they felt that was a su sufficient period of time, and they were offered no excuse. So in the uh, effect of the, of the appraisal, there's nothing in there. These are, these are different cases than the ones they rely on. So they have no basis for withholding the payment for vexatious liability and the Olga Despotis kind of case where the insurance company did everything right. Uh, there was no vexatious liability before because they paid the undisputed portion. You don't have, you're not obligated thereby to pay the, the disputed portion up front, and that's what the Olga Despotis plaintiffs wanted inappropriately. Uh, and then it's a question of can they prove they, they didn't act with vexatious conduct, and that's completely a matter for the, them to put up some evidence and the jury didn't to decide, and they didn't put up any evidence. So the jury decided those periods were too long. You didn't give me any excuse for waiting so long. My view, you're just waiting on the float making money, and they awarded the, the penalties. Uh, the next one is a combination of the plumbing and uh, uh, vandalism damage, and they attack the sufficiency of the evidence on plumbing and the sufficiency of the evidence on the timing of the damage for the vandalism. We think they've weighed those by waiving the admission of the Cox report that stated all of those matters, including the wind. They say they didn't view him as opining about anything other than calculating the amount. But when you read what he said, he said all three of those things. It occurred that period of time, it occurred in that amount of money. So there's no uh, washing what, what the man said, and they didn't object. So I think it's their misperception on what the witness testified to as to whether or not maybe they didn't object. Assuming they didn't waive it, we make the argument they're stopped to assert any kind of speculative nature to the testimony because they took over the property shortly after the fire in uh, 2019, before the winter. And that's when these damages occurred. And they have the right of the policy to do that and we can't do anything about it because the insurance policy requires us to cooperate with their demands. Nevertheless, repeated demands were made. Let us get to the property, winterize it, because there's water in the pipes, it's going to freeze, it's going to damage the pipes. And their response was no. Even though they admit later, we had already finished our examination in November before winter came. And their representative candidly wrote a letter on February 14th that said, this is our mistake. We didn't have a reason to hold it after that. Her, her excuse was, I'm just overwhelmed with other claims. So the whole thing was avoidable. But on the other hand, she wouldn't let them, on their own expense, come in and winterize the property, drain the water, or get the heat restored. 
Either one of those would have avoided this problem. But they said no. And their own adjuster said, I think damage is likely from a plumbing freeze. I want to get a, he asked them repeatedly, I want to get an adjuster to come in, or not an adjuster, but a consultant, and figure out if there is damage from this happening. MGARD did not respond, and they would give no reason why. And I can speculate why, but I'd just be speculating. But Mr. Carter, your, your time's expired. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. Mr. Jones, for the owner. Good morning, Your Honor. My name is Clark Jones. I represent the insured and the property owner, Shri Ganesay, LLC. And with respect to the testimony of Skylar Lazar, the uh, insurance company AmGuard has claimed that it was error on the part of tr the trial court to exclude that testimony, but AmGuard is mistaken. Your Honors, Shri Ganesay, uh, we, we were trying to depose Ms. Lazar throughout the entirety of this litigation from the minute we were advised uh, that she had any sort of knowledge about it. Um, specifically, and really were most you, importantly excuse here. Excuse me. Were you served the, um, the return of the subpoena? I was not until it was filed. It was filed on September 9th of 2022. Trial was on September the 12th. It was filed literally the Friday before a Monday trial. Importantly, and most importantly, she was served on August the 30th. So there was a 10-day lapse from the time she was served until the time the subpoena service return was filed. We had no idea she had been found. We had no idea she had been served. We had no contact information regarding her, no phone number, no address, nothing. During that 10-day period, on September 7th of 2022, a number of other service returns were filed by AmGuard. Curiously, the one for Skylar Lazar was not. We had no idea uh, about her at all. It's also important to note that she was not served by the sheriff. She was served by a private process server, an agent of AmGuard. Uh, to think that that person could not have obtained her address or her phone number at the time service was made is simply nonsensical. Uh, so AmGuard's argument that they were on a level playing field with us up until the day of trial is simply, uh, simply erroneous. They served her with their own agent for whatever reason. If you take them at their word, they didn't obtain her contact information at the time of service. But uh, under no circumstances did they advise us that she had been served. Had they done so, we would have endeavored to find her, to get a statement from her, interview her, perhaps even depose her if there was enough time. And we were simply unable to do that. It was just an ambush tactic on the day of trial, or not the day of trial, actually, the third day of trial, when they tried to, to introduce her testimony. Um, how about the, how about changing subjects? The adverse inference instruction with Your respect Honor, the adverse to inference Mr. Patel taking uh, the Fifth Amendment. I, I apologize. Would you, which one do you, would you like me to address first? Well, I think it's the same thing. I mean, he took the Fifth Amendment. The adverse inference instruction, I think, was refused. Your Honor, the adverse inference instruction was never properly requested by Amgard. 
They filed proposed jury instructions that included the adverse inference instruction in there. Uh, the trial judge told all parties that she was not inclined to give the adverse inference instruction. And then, curiously and quite ironically, um, <laughs> the record reflects Mr. Morrow nodding in agreement with the uh, trial judge when she made that statement. He did not lodge an objection. In fact, the record says, just in case the Eighth Circuit would like to know your position. <laughs> it was quite, quite ironic. Um, no formal objection was lodged at that time to the court's refusal to offer the adverse inference instruction. Thereafter, the instructions were finalized and all parties were given a final set of instructions the court then affirmatively asked if there were any other objections that the parties wished to make. Counsel for AMGAR did make objections at that point in time to some other instructions, but he did not affirmatively object to the absence of the adverse inference instruction. No, from that point forward, no further request for the adverse inference instruction was made till after the jury deliberated. Okay, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see an argument, a waiver argument in your briefs, that, that this nodding constituted a waiver. I, I made the argument that it was a waiver under Rule 51 because the objection was not timely. Well, but don't you preserve an instruction objection by presenting an instruction? I don't believe in, in this case he did because the uh, there was no formal objection to the court's refusal to give the instruction. And then he didn't thereafter request it until after the jury had retired to deliberate. Do you have any case law that says that? Yes. But you also have to object in addition to supply or presenting the, the instruction you wish? Well, the Beckman versus Mayo Foundation case says that under Rule 51, an objection not properly lodged is is waived. Um, and if the objection is not properly lodged, then this court reviews it for plain error instead of abuse of discretion. I think even under abuse of discretion, the absence of the adverse inference instruction is still valid. I think that the instructions that submitted fairly and adequately um, represent the evidence in the applicable law. So whether it's under plain error or abuse of discretion, I think in either event, the trial court's ruling should be upheld. Okay, then, and I'm interested in why, because it, at least in my experience long ago, you were generally entitled to an adverse inference instruction if somebody took the Fifth Amendment in a civil case. Well, Your Honor, there was no cases cited uh, by AMGARD, and I'm not aware of any cases in which an adverse inference jury instruction has actually been given in any court. Um, there is certainly case law that says uh, the adverse inference may be made, uh, and that was argued for quite extensively by counsel. But there is no case of which I'm aware that an adverse inference instruction was actually submitted to a jury. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Mr. Morrow, we'll give you a little over a minute. To I appreciate that, Your Honor. <clears throat> I will take the last thing first. There is um, at least one Missouri case, JCM v. JKM, where the adverse instruction was given, and it's the exact instruction that we proposed to the court. 
I disagree with the characterization that it was waived. I direct the court to Monaghan v. Flannery, A Circuit 1985. I would also direct the court generally to um, other cases. Um, uh, the um, Stewart, which is cited by uh, the same case, and the Moomer v. Reading case. Also, the full quote from the court is, we'll see what the Eighth Circuit does or something like that. You can take the fifth on that, Mr. Morrow, is that's, that's what she said to me. Um, so I, I think that it, it goes to the general federal court principle that fruitless objections are not necessary, that um, where a party is aware of a concerns with the, with the instructions, further objection would be and further objection would be unavailing, a appellate court will not require a futile formal objection. But the court didn't deny you the ability to make the argument. Is that correct? Uh, they did not deny the ability. I think what I, my, my argument is that it was clear that it was futile based on her statement. After she said she had made her ruling, we had talked about it the day before about the adverse instruction. We had talked about the Fifth Amendment throughout this trial many, many times. She had made her ruling clear exactly what she wanted me to do and, and the instruction. And I think at that point, a further objection would have been futile, and I think it was unnecessary under the case law, would be my argument. Going to one of I'm sorry, go ahead. May sure. I ask? Um, but, but does the record contain. Um, an argument. I know the, instru uh, the, the instruction, I guess, was offered. Yes. But does the record contain an argument as to why the instruction should have should be given? I think it's and why, and why it would be error for the court not to give it. I don't think I used the uh, reasons why it would be error for the court not to give it. We extensively breached the Fifth Amendment stuff again and again. I provided the case law with the jury instruction itself. It was tied up within this general, essentially, discussion of the Fifth Amendment throughout the process. I did not use the words it would be error for this not to be presented. It was our position that it should be presented. We submitted it. The court was considering it um, and then, at the very beginning of the conference, said she wasn't going to give it. Um, so, and then as far as just a few other quick points, the timeline is a little different than Mr. Carter implied. Um, the decision on the fire claim was made in, in November after the fire, November um, 2020. At that point, um, we had, uh, we started following up with the bank. Look at page 74 of the transcript. We followed up with the bank again and again and again prior to suit, asking them what they wanted to do with the claim, whether or not they wanted to go out to the property. They sued us. We sent our own guy out there independently. We paid. There was expert discovery. We were restrained from presenting, though, then the, the timeline after that, which I still think is important. But I think the delay has a lot more nuance than Mr. Carter stated. I also would say that the deposition attempts mentioned by Mr. Jones um, are not in the record as far as his uh, trying to find Ms. Lazar and all of that. I still think that looking at the case law, looking kind of at the opposite of when it's been allowed when a witness has not been disclosed, there isn't a case where, where the other side knew the testimony, where the other side was on the level playing field where a witness was then excluded from testifying as long as they had a chance to cross-examine them at trial. And, um, I, and as far as I would just direct the court generally on the freeze damage issue to the expert's actual testimony, which is um, not proper under Daubert and uh, was essentially an ipsodistic uh, you know it when you see it. 
I've seen freeze pipes, they'll freeze 100% of the time, which is an unsupported scientific opinion, not knowing the size of the pipes, the building, anything about the insulation, anything um, about the water within the pipe, saying that all of the pipes broke at this property at the same time, 100% certainty is not a properly supported scientific expert opinion under Daubert. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Morrow. Court thanks all counsel for your participation in argument before us this morning. We'll continue to study the record in the case and render decision. Thank you. Counsel may be excused.